This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 51 is Jungian analyst, author, and scholar, Anne Casement. She attended the Sorbonne in Paris and the London School of Economics, where she earned her degree in physical and social anthropology and is now in private practice as a Jungian analyst in London, England. She is a senior member of the British Psychotherapy Foundation and the British Jungian Analytic Association, and is an associate member of the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association in New York and a New York State licensed psychoanalyst. She is also a member of the British Psychoanalytic Council as well as the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis in New York. She is a founding member of the International Neuropsychoanalytic Association and has served on the Executive and Ethics Committees of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. Her books include Post-Jungians Today, Key Papers in Contemporary Analytical Psychology, published in 1998, Carl Gustav Jung, Part of the Key Figures in Counseling and Psychotherapy Series, published in 2001. Who Owns Psychoanalysis, published in 2004 and nominated for the Gradiva Award in 2005. The Idea of the Numinous, Contemporary Jungian and Psychoanalytic Perspectives, along with David Tacey, published in 2006. Who Owns Jung, published in 2007, the forthcoming The Blazing Sublime, a Jung-Lacan publication due in May 2020, and her very own The Analyst's Guide to Jung, set to be released by Phoenix Publications in London next year. She has conducted research into statutory regulation at the University of London and has published widely including articles and reviews for The Economist, and is on the editorial board of the Journal of Analytical Psychology, as well as other professional journals. In November of this year, she delivered the Fay Lecture Series at the Jung Center of Houston, Texas, titled Integrating Shadow, Authentic Being in the World, and it is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Monday, December 2nd, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Mrs. Casement, welcome to Speaking of Jung. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I I wonder if I might make a couple of um, amendments to the introduction. Uh, One is I forgot that I'm also a member of the British Psychological Society, as I'm a psychologist as well as a psychoanalyst. Um, The other is that the research I conducted on statutory regulation was actually at the House of Lords. At the House of Lords. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'd be most interested to do that. Um, I was at that time um, the head of uh, a large umbrella group called the British sorry, the UK Council for Psychotherapy, which uh, covered all the, all the main modalities of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in the UK. And I 
uh, went to have a meeting with um, a peer at the House of Lords because I was meeting with various members of Parliament and uh, Lords to discuss uh, the work of the UK Council. Um, and one of them was uh, was a peer called Lord Alderdice, John Alderdice, who offered to bring a private member's bill to regulate what's called psychotherapy in the UK. Believe it or not, we don't have uh, licensing in the UK, either for psychoanalysis or for psychotherapy. Okay. So, of course, I was very excited by this offer. And we then proceeded to bring together what John Alderdice called the main stakeholders, and that included, of course, the UK Council, which I was head, the British Psychoanalytic Council, uh, the, the Royal College of Psychiatry, um, the British Psychological Society, um, and other bodies that were that had a vested interest, of course, in. Uh, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and we worked uh, together for two years at the House of Lords uh, which was absolutely fascinating because I learned a lot about the workings of Parliament doing that mm -hmm. particularly of course the House of Lords um, and I briefed a lot of the peers who supported our move to statutory regulation. They were highly supportive of us. Um, and uh, so I had the great pleasure of seeing my words appearing in what's called Hansard, if that <laughs> means anything to you, um, which is a recording of what happens every day in the chamber of the House oh, of Lords. Oh, yes, yes, okay. You know, you have an equivalent, I expect, in the Senate in Washington. Um, and so um, that went along uh, very well for two years. We worked, you know, we brought together all these main stakeholders, as they were referred to, um, who worked extremely amicably and diligently together. But once we got it to what's called second reading, um, it was killed in the House of Lords by the then mm. Under Secretary of State for Health, who happened to be a Labour peer. And he had he did, wasn't doing it for malicious reasons. He had his reasons for, for not wishing a bill to go through at that point. So we remain actually unlicensed to use the term that you use in the United States. Mm -hmm. No psychoanalyst. I'm probably one of the very few, possibly even the only psychoanalysts, licensed psychoanalysts in the United Kingdom because I have my license in New York State. I see. So you attended the Sorbonne during a very interesting time uh, with some very notable people. And that was a big influence on you. And you're also an anthropologist. Um, I came to anthropology because I was introduced, uh, I was only 18 at the time. Mm. So, um, I nevertheless managed to, <laughs> I suppose, hold my own reasonably well with uh, people like Claude Levi-Strauss, um, Merleau-Ponty, who was absolutely wonderful, um, Sartre, who I had, uh, I attended a dinner that he gave one night at the um, 
what was called the Select, which was still there actually. It's one of those wonderful old brasseries in, in Montparnasse. Um, so I, I, I was very fortunate because I was well connected, shall we say, and this is why I happened to be introduced to some of these. Um, you know, obviously very big names. And uh, Levi Strauss in particular um, rather took a shine to me because of my background. I'm, I'm what's known as, uh, we call it in the, in the UK, we call it the British Raj in India. And that's my background. I come from an old colonial family. And Lady Strauss, as an anthropologist, was very admiring of what the British did in India compared to what the French did mm. with their colonies, in, particularly in Algeria and, of course, in Vietnam, which I need hardly say more about. Mm -hmm. So you completed your studies in anthropology, and then you somehow became a Jungian analyst. And I'd like to go over a little bit about how mm -hmm. that came to be. And you and I were chatting a little bit before about how we both entered analysis when we were in our 20s, which is relatively young for that. And so I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about how that happened and how you then came to become a practicing Jungian analyst. Well, I started on the couch, as we say, in London, um, I had, uh, obviously I wouldn't have known this sort of language when I first started, but I had what was called a recurring problem. I mean, I was astute enough to know that this was, that I kept finding myself in a certain situation. And so I eventually went to my, what we call general practitioner here, and he was enlightened enough to say he thought that um, I might benefit from talking to somebody about this situation. And so I said, yes, yes, I would like to do that. And I went along and I found myself in what I eventually came to realize was a Jungian analysis. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started. That's how you started. And then eventually you... I mean, you, you had to have received some training uh, as well in order to become a psychoanalyst. And so what did that involve? Oh, that's a very long path because one can't, of course, just from having a degree go into training, or at least I would advise anyone thinking that way not to do that because um, it, training to be... A, a psychotherapist, let alone a psychoanalyst, stirs up so much um, unconscious material in any individual, um, so that the longer one takes before embarking on a full training as a psychoanalyst, better for the individual because it, otherwise, you know, you see people having breakdowns and so on. Um, so I first did my first training as a therapist. Um, and I then spent, I'm, I'm sort of going quite quickly over mm -hmm. sure. you know, various things in life. Uh, I then spent many years working in psychiatry, which I came to love. And I became really dedicated to the patients that I was working with. Mm -hmm. And this was National Health Service Psychiatry. Um, and... The, what I was the head consultant then had a meeting with me and 
offered me a consultancy, rather to my astonishment, uh, largely because the work I was doing with some of these highly disturbed patients, mm -hmm. uh, combined with their medication, was keeping them as outpatients, which mm -hmm. was saving the National Health Service a lot of money. So really, it was just a, you know largely a practical move, but also I got on extremely well with the two uh, consultant psychiatrists who I thought were so dedicated to their patients. I was really impressed by that. So now when you were working in psychiatry, was that talk therapy and dispensing medication? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. well, yes, they, they, uh, these uh, patients who are either borderline but largely um, psychotic patients. So uh, one can't really do psychoanalysis. It would be highly dangerous, actually, to try any kind of psychoanalytic uh, dream work or mm. um, active imagination, as some unions practice, which I don't, um, or even free associating with uh, patients like that, because they're already right. know, in dreamlike states, free associating all the time. So this was actually where my interest in, and my I changed totally as a result of this work in various ways, one of which was that it brought me much more into the mainstream psychoanalytic work because my work was being supervised by a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society. Would you tell us briefly about the various societies in the UK? I've never had anyone on the podcast from any of them. So I know that it's structured differently than, let's say, here in the United States, where um, we have the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts that trains analysts. So how does it work in the UK? I have actually um, done seminars for the Interregional. So uh, that was actually at Pittsburgh, um, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, but yes, you're right. I think the, the I think there is a difference in the trainings. And largely, I would say, because um, the majority, not all by any means, but the majority of Jungian psychoanalysts train, um, uh, of course, they train in Jungian theory and practice, but they also incorporate a great deal of mainstream psychoanalytic theory and practice in their trainings. And in the UK, are there different training institutions that one can attend? Yes, the I, uh, there have been a number of splits, actually. Mm -hmm. in, in the, the one reason why I became interested in focusing on um, Jung's concept of shadow, because yes. there was so much shadow around when I was first mm. in the Union world in the UK. We, one might say the UK pioneered splitting in the Union community. Um, it's now uh, what that's led to is five discrete um, Jungian trainings, all of which are members of the IAP. That is fascinating. And so because the UK is not, it's not as large as the US. So there are five different training organizations in the UK. Mm. They, they are varying size, of course. The um, two largest ones, one of which I belong to, are the Society of Analytical Psychology, the SAP, 
and the other, which I remember of, is the British Union Analytic Association. Both those um, groups uh, are what are called developmental union trainings. In other words, they incorporate a great deal of mainstream psychoanalytic therapy, uh, sorry, theory and uh, practice in their training. Mm-hmm. And the others? Um, the There are three others which are more, uh, more Jungian. Mm-hmm. Maybe more classically Jungian? Uh, two of them in particular, yes, very classical. I'm not, a, uh, my own background, I would say, uh, I, I function as a developmental, but also as an archetypal Jungian psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. And you knew Hillman, didn't you? Yes, I got to know James very well. I at first we rather um, we were rather wary of each other because um, uh, on my part I admired his writing. I thought he had one of the most beautiful writing styles I'd encountered in the psycho world. Um, but um, I thought he. I, I, oh, there were all kinds of reasons why I was a bit wary okay. closely involved. Mm-hmm. James, for his part, I think identified me as what he called dismissively a London Jungian. In other words, um, only interested in ego psychology, as okay. he would. Um, and, but as we got to know each other better, we developed a real fondness for each other and I, I I miss him terribly because he was really one of the great characters of the Jungian psycho world. Mm-hmm. Also, you were around Michael Fordham and Gerhard yes. Adler. Would oh, you, thank you. Yes. Yes. Now, would you tell us who they oh, were? Yeah, that's very, very important to what I was saying earlier about the, the splits um, to quite an extent were between Michael on the one hand and Gerhard on the other. Um, Gerhard was, um, I, I was, I was so close to Gerhard and Hella, his wife, um, because I, I found them absolutely fascinating. They had been intimate, um, friends and analysands of Jung's, mm-hmm. they knew that whole Zurich scene, which I didn't know at all at that time, they knew Jung well, they knew uh, Emma Jung, they knew Tony Wolf. Um, Gerhard had an analysis with Jung himself and also with Tony Wolf, and Hella Adler analyzed with um, Emma Jung. So they could tell me First, you know, give me first-hand accounts of Jung and the whole circle around him, which was absolutely fascinating, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, um, I didn't know that well, but he was so generous to me because I was asked by the Journal of Analytical Psychology to write about the splits in the UK for the 40th anniversary of the journal. And so I went around interviewing everyone for that, and Michael gave me a whole day of his time at his home in Buckinghamshire. And he was very open with me. Uh, obviously, I, everything I wrote, I sent to each of these people to vest before I published mm-hmm. it. Um, and so I developed, I, I think we in the UK and the Union world in general owe Michael a huge debt because. 
he is really the pioneer of um, this union, if you like, of Jungian and Kleinian in particular, psychoanalytic theory and practice. I mean, he knew Jung, right? He was in an Alessandro yes. Jung's as well? No, no, he didn't have analysis with Jung, but he certainly knew him well. He had seemed to have a particular affection for Emma Jung. He writes very warmly about her. I, I sense a certain guardedness when he's writing about Jung, although Michael um, always wrote, very, you know, was very supportive of Jung of, uh, and wrote mm-hmm. as a Jungian psychoanalyst. He never said that he was a, you know, mainstream psychoanalyst. Um, yes, he he was one of the editors, so was Gerhard, of the uh, English uh, collected works of Jung. Yes. And where did you write about them? Uh, that was in um, the Journal of Analytical Psychology. I wrote uh, a, his- a brief history of the splits in the UK Jungian world for the 40th anniversary issue of the JAP. Okay, great. And I will put a link to that in the show notes on this episode page. And I would also like to mention that you wrote a book that was published in 2001 called Carl Gustav Jung. I I highly recommend, but it was written, as I said, in 2001, which was before the publication of the Red Book. And I'm just wondering if you would have changed anything or added anything now since you've seen the Red Book? Um, the Red Book, um, thank you for what you said about Carl Gustav Jung. That actually was one of a series. It, it was edited by someone I know well called Wendy Dryden. Um, and so he invited me to do the one on Jung and then somebody else did the one, the one on Freud and so on, you know, this one on Klein. So so we were given a format and we had to stick to it. Um, and Wendy seemed pleased with what I what I gave him on Jung. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Yes, the Red Book. Um, I... I, I'm close to Sonu Shamdasani, and I, I was actually with Sonu at the launch of the Red Book in New York in 2009, and then we also went to Washington in 2010 for the um, the at the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a display of the Red Book, yes, uh, which was, which was marvelous actually. And Sonu is such a gifted scholar. I, I have all the time in the world for him. Um, the, the Red Book, I've, I still, I guess I still haven't made up my mind about it. Uh, in one way, I would see it as um, the perfect um, um, reference book to explore uh, the existence of God in cyberspace. And I have actually written about that for a book uh, that Murray Stein produced. Um, the the other thing I'd like to say about the Red Book was that I reviewed it for The Economist uh, in literally the week that it, it was launched in New York City. And my uh, editor, The Econ, uh, was so 
astonished by the artwork in it that she actually asked me if, if Jung had painted all these paintings himself. She mm. said she thought that this was great art. She was really, and she's somebody who knows a lot about art too. So that was quite a compliment. But yes, he's certainly a very gifted artist. And I've actually written, um, i trying to remember where, I think it was uh, quite recently. I, I wrote, oh yes, that's right. It's, uh, for the Sublime book, I've written a chapter on um, Jung's, why Jung um, avoided using the term sublime. I think he actually was mm -hmm. such a gifted artist mm -hmm. that he was anxious that he might be seduced away from from his work as a psychologist. Oh, yes, and, and that's in the forthcoming book, The Blazing Sublime, that's which is a yes. Jung... Yes. Yes, a Jung-Lacan publication that's due next year. Would you tell us a little bit about that book? Yes, that came about um, because I, uh, with um, another Jungian and two Lacanian psychoanalysts in, in London, uh, I organized a conference at Cambridge. I'm trying to remember what it was called now. Um, but that was a joint Jung-Lacan conference. I've always been interested in Lacan because, of course, going back to my time in Paris, Lacan was very much around at that time. Um, and so we did a conference, and my friend Oliver Rathbone at Karnak uh, was very keen to publish a book out of that conference, but I, I said uh, all those years ago that I didn't want to do any more books, and here I am now <laughs> producing more books yes. again. Um, so I, I declined at that point, but then um, – it kind of wouldn't go away. You know how some ideas keep nagging at you mm -hmm. until you pay attention to them. And so I approached Oliver again. I asked him if he would be interested in publishing a book out of that conference, and he said, absolutely. So we are duly producing that right now, and it's going to be published by Routledge, in fact, because Karnak have um, sold their publishing arm to Routledge. It's going to be published by Routledge. The publication date at the moment is May 2020. And you have, um, how many chapters do you have in that book? Um, well, I, I'm the editor, so I have one chapter. Um, we had to keep the word, you know, publishers don't like publishing big books. Um, so we've tried to keep the, um, the uh, word count down to, I think we've got it to about one, 125,000 words, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we've got several contributors, many of whom were gave presentations at that conference and who came from all around the world. So we've got chapters from people from the Far East, from the United States, obviously, Latin America, um, and so on. Oh, uh, nice. uh, Europe, yeah. too, which I can, now, I can now say Europe because we're about to leave the EU. Um, and so on, and, and Turkey, and oh, various other parts of the world, which is wonderful. Are they all analysts or some scholars as well? No, no, it's a joint mix. That's a very good question. No, it's a, it's a mix of analysts and academics. I see. 
And then you also have another book coming out next year, which you've written on your own. Uh, It's called The Analyst's Guide to Jung, and it will be released by the newly formed Phoenix Publications, which is based there in London. And would you tell us a little bit about The Analyst's Guide to Jung? That's a highly individual view of Jung. Um, I'm, I'm really loving doing that because the, the Carl Gustav Jung, I, as I mentioned earlier, I had to write according to a format. And of course, it, I could express my own ideas. But this one, I've been given carte blanche. And so it's really... Um, the accumulation of uh, 55 years of being in the Jungian world, um, which is being distilled into this new book. Could you give us any any surprises in there? Anything? <laughs> One or two I'd like to keep till the publication, because okay. I, I, did, I did actually, I have got one or two rather wonderful surprises in there. It is quite a critical account, I'd have to say. I, I tend to look at everything. I, I'm not, um, I don't look at life through roast into spectacles. Mm-hmm. I tend to have quite a critical eye. Uh, so I'm looking at Jung and some of his concepts and some of his ways of practicing in quite a critical way. Um, I, I'm not in any way trying to be destructive of mm-hmm. Jung for obvious reasons, because after all, I've dedicated most of my life to working in, uh, in the Jungian world. Um, it's, it's, it's very individual. Um, it's, I, 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 let me think, are there any things I can... There, there were all one or two surprises. I even surprised Sonu by telling him something that oh. he had before, but I, I don't want to... Obviously, I don't want to broadcast that before the book comes out. Well, maybe you can come back after it's published next year, (laughs) and we can talk about that. And I I was reading in your paper on Wolfgang Giegrich, where you said that your study of his writings led you to rethink the usage of some of Jung's terms, such as the psychoid, synchronicity, and even the unconscious. Wolfgang has completely transformed me. In a, in a way, I think I would say that if one's looking at this teleologically, uh, in a way, it's almost as if my encounter with Wolfgang is why I'm I came into the Jungian world. And would you tell us who he is? Uh, Wolfgang is a um, Jungian psychoanalyst living and practicing in Berlin. He he's the most for me the most provocative, interesting, and in-depth thinker in in the Jungian world. Mm. Um, He did, I think his academic background is in Oriental studies, and he speaks, I think, a couple of Oriental languages quite well. I I come from India, so I I was fluent in Hindi at one time, but I obviously don't have Japanese or Chinese, which is unfortunate because I work a lot now in Japan and China, uh, both of which I love. Um, but Wolfgang, uh, he's also highly philosophically based, and I've always been drawn to philosophy since I was 16. Um, what he's done for me is immeasurable, really. Um, he's uh, reopened my 
uh, great interest in perhaps one of the most incredible philosophers who ever lived, and that's Heidegger. Um, he's also shown me how important Hegel is. Jung totally dismissed Hegel. I think really Jung gets his reading, a lot of his reading of Hegel from Schopenhauer. But again, mm-hmm. Schopenhauer is a huge influence on my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wolfgang, Wolfgang for me is is he writes incredibly well. I mean, he is so articulate. We disagree, actually, um, and he's very open. I find him one of the most humane, thoughtful men I've ever encountered. We disagree in practice because um, I value ego development. And and, uh, Wolfgang and both James and Wolfgang tended to be quite dismissive of ego development. And by James, Uh, you mean James Hillman? And James Hillman, yes. They were very close. Uh, Wolfgang started off being an archetypal psychologist and very Mm -hmm. close to James Hillman way back. And then there was a parting of the ways because James's focus is on image and Wolfgang's focus is on thought and idea. And that's the essential difference between them. And my, my own leaning is really to the intellect and to ideas. And so I found in Wolfgang, I, I suppose what I was always looking for, although I hadn't realized I was looking for it, and that was someone who, with whom I could develop my thinking, which I've spent my life doing, really. But he, um, Wolfgang, specifically in the psychoanalytic world. In your paper, you talk about his use of the word soul, and you mentioned that one cannot find the soul in a dissected human being. And he told you, for me, there is no such thing as a soul. The soul does not exist. It is the depth of the logical life at work in what happens. No more. Yes, that's, you, you, yes, you really are acute. You know, you've absolutely homed in on something so vital there. Uh, the reason I, for that is that that's where he's at his most Heideggerian. Mm. And if you read Heidegger, this is what Heidegger's a phenomenologist, and for phenomenologists, they they're not looking, you know, for theory or what stands behind things. They're just looking straight at something. Mm-hmm. And I really like that a lot, and I've come to value that enormously too. Uh, both in Heidegger and in Wolfgang's work. So for him, there's no substantiated phenomenon that you can call the soul that produces whatever, you know, dreams or unconscious material or whatever. Soul for both Jung and Wolfgang means, is another word for psyche or for mind. You know, it's... it's, uh, uh, and I had difficulty with that because I always thought of soul in a religious context, mm-hmm. but I came to understand yeah. how both James Hillman and Wolfgang Eagerich use that term. Jung does as well, of course, as you know. He, he, a lot of the time he refers to soul in his work, doesn't yes. he? Yes. So uh, switching gears here a little bit, you mentioned Sanud Shandasani. Uh, yes. And 
in your book, Carl Gustav Jung, you point out that Shamdasani disputes that Memories, Dreams, Reflections was written by Jung. And so it is erroneous to refer to it as Jung's autobiography. And I bring this up because it is such a popular book. It is a lot of people's introduction to Jung and Jung's thinking and Jung's life. And I know that the Philemon Foundation is doing something, is republishing that book. Uh, mm. They're working on that. So I was wondering if you would just share your thoughts on what the story is with that book. Have you interviewed Sanu? I haven't. I, I have not reached out to him. Um, uh, actually, I, 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 honestly, I'm, I'm quite yeah. intimidated. Oh, he, he's, he's a wonderful person. He's... he's uh, and it, it really, you would have nothing to, to be intimidated about. He's really wonderful, very generous, and um, quietly spoken and thoughtful. And he's an absolute fund of knowledge. You know, he's oh, like I'm sure, yes. Um, but he's he's generous with his knowledge. He he's not. He doesn't try and use it in any way. You know, to intimidate anyone. I'm sure you would find him very. He he said absolutely. I'd say he, him, and if you can get Wolfgang, you would have to. Oh, I would love to. Him. Yes, and I, I'll drop each of them a line if you like. Oh, if thank you, you so much. I would, would wait on you, of course. But if you ever wanted to speak to either of them, I'll give them a you know give you a high recommendation. For oh, you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so I think Sonu, um, yes, he, he doesn't say the whole book, the whole of um, MDR, but that a lot of it is what he calls, it's an artification. In other words, that Aniela Yaffe, who is Jung's um, um, personal assistant, secretary, you know, that kind of thing, that she, there's quite a bit of it was her input. Mm -hmm. And he's written a lot about that. But I think you actually, if you're going to interview Sonu, he'll give you a much account. I've got, I've got the book that he wrote about it. Um, and he gives, you know, he quotes from it where he thinks he's a, not yeah. Jung himself, but but quite a lot of it is Jung. It's not. It's not. But he also mentions Sonu. I mean that uh, Jung himself distanced himself from MDR and said that this was not his autobiography. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I interestingly enough was listening to an interview with Anila Yaffe, who actually was she was a student of Jung's and then mm -hmm. went into analysis with him mm -hmm. and became an analyst herself. Uh, yes. Eventually. She's like a very good woman, actually. I know someone who worked really closely with Ernest Bob Hinshaw in, uh, who's in Einsiedeln, which is up above. Oh yes. They've been there. Yes. He, and Bob is wonderful. Uh, really. Yes. Wonderful. He's yes. another walking archive. Um, and he was very close to Aniela. Yes, I actually got to sit and speak with him in his office, looking out the window onto the huge Benedictine Abbey that houses the Black Madonna. Um, and, and we did speak about her. He, Bob is someone I'm very close to personally because we, uh, we were asked to um, chair the Cambridge 
IAP Congress. We have Congresses every three years. Now that's a major undertaking. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure. And Bob and I had never met before. And coming from, one coming from Zurich, the other from London, we were rather sort of eyeing each other up and down. <laughs> but we, he set off almost immediately, and we became so close. And uh, he told me a lot about Zurich, which I was fascinated by. Mm -hmm. And, he, you know, he and I just are still very dear friends. And we've done we've worked done some work together for the IAP in other ways as well. Uh, but Bob uh, would have a lot of information on Aniela, which if you wanted to know more about her. Yes, and and I was actually just listening to an interview that she did with Suzanne Wagner for the Remembering Jung series, yeah. and. Uh, Dr. Wagner asked her if it was true that there were some things that were left out of the book um, because the family didn't want it in there. And she said no. And it's interesting because I've heard a lot of conflicting information mm -hmm. about that. And Dr. Wagner suggested that it was or it was on the topic of reincarnation. And, and Mrs. Yaffe, she said no that that wasn't true so there's so many stories and and what's true and what isn't and and which kind of maybe will lead us into our topic for today which is the shadow mm -hmm. and i found it interesting that you mentioned that the splits in the societies in the uk that they kind of pioneered splitting right here in chicago the young society association split and so now there's one in Evanston and there's yes. one in the city of Chicago I, right I, I, yes indeed I know I was in Chicago for the Chicago Congress I think that was in 97 98 something like that and I and I did know Peter Mart at least I got to know him a little bit and so Peter I think um headed you know uh, i don't know a huge amount about the split but i was hearing about it while i was there and then i heard subsequently one or two things but yes that's that's yeah one's in evanston and where's the other one it's in the city of chicago it's downtown and it is now the young institute of chicago so it is a training institute yeah so george hoganson and people like that would be and um mary what's that lovely woman um that i'm so fond of uh yeah names now uh but anyway yes i know some of the chicago people of course mm -hmm. and and i know george hoganson very well yes and dr hoganson was a guest on this program getting to the topic of the shadow um another young society here in the united states which is probably the largest one which is in houston texas it's just called the young center mm -hmm has an annual lecture series called the Fay Lecture Series, and you presented it this year for them, which was back in November, and it's titled Integrating Shadow, Authentic Being in the World. And what I found interesting is that you said Jung's thinking on shadow may be viewed as the most important contribution to psychology from his vast oeuvre. It is as relevant today with the proliferation of strong men and their revanchist policies as it was in Jung's time when the twinned ideologies of communism and fascism stormed the world stage. Oh, yes, I wrote that blurb for the, for, for the um, Jung Center to circulate. <laughs> 
So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, what is the shadow? I think I'm going to let Jung speak to that, because who better than Jung? Um, And very succinctly, he said, the shadow is everything one has no wish to be, which I think sums it up beautifully. Um, The reason I got interested in shadow, apart from all this splitting that I witnessed in the 70s in the UK, um, was that I lecture on the um, uh, master's and PhD post-Jungian course at one of the universities in the UK. Um, And I've been there ever since it started. And my theme became shadow. I, I was actually lecturing on something else. And then one of the students said, why is shadow on the curriculum? And I said, what a good question. So I did, I did an extra seminar on shadow for the university, and they then incorporated that in the curriculum. And uh, what I then realized I needed to do was to write quite a didactic paper on shadow, because um, you know, if you're introduced, the question you're asking me, which of course what students would ask as well, what is shadow? Um, how do we identify it? How do we experience it? And so on. So I wrote a didactic piece dividing shadow into three parts um, personal, collective, and archetypal. Mm-hmm. And so I've been expanding on that over the years since then. Um, what I did for Houston was to start, take that as a starting point and say, you know, I've divided it in this way just for ease of getting into the topic. But obviously, these are not discrete entities. There's huge overlap between personal, collective, archetypal shadow. Um, and archetypal shadow, and I'd like to just talk a little bit to that, Mm-hmm. Archetypal shadow is what Jung would identify with evil. Now, it's important once we start looking at evil to realize that actually the whole of Jung's vast of is actually uh, grows out of the Christian West. It, it, you know, it can't. It can't. Right. It's rooted in the Christian West. Yes. It can't come from anywhere else. Um, it, it, particularly his lifelong um, fascination with these notions of good and evil. All the time he's, you know, he's working around these two. Um, and so with archetypal shadow, and I've written quite a bit on that, um, that's that's very dangerous, of course, for anyone to go anywhere near that because it, it, if you know uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. that's an extraordinary short story or long short story, um, which is a, which is the best example I can think of of uh, archetypal shadow, where this man goes into nineteenth uh, century Congo, and he he becomes completely consumed by the darkness that lies at the heart of of the jungle. Mm -hmm. And he himself becomes evil. And he, everything around, he turns everything around him into evil. 
Um, and so that I would recommend to anyone who doesn't already know it as a, the most brilliant evocation that I can think of of archetypal shadow. Jung is really, you know, what I love about Jung is that he really gets down to it. You know, he's he's uh, not pussyfooting around. Right. He's good and evil exist. Uh, they are there. You know, we have to we have to acknowledge that. And he, and he criticizes Christianity for splitting off evil and trying to kind of clean it up a bit. You know? mm-hmm. so it's just the deprivation of good and that's evil. Well, it's actually Jung is saying this is a force in its own right. Now, these these are great contributions to thinking. Uh, you know, what Jung was doing at that level, I think, is is incredible. The personal shadow is not necessarily evil. And I get that a lot. Because that is a running theme through this podcast. It was something that I worked with in my own personal analysis. It is a topic that I have been uh, focusing on for many years. And it's come up recently because of the work of a K-pop group um, called BTS. So there's a lot of interest around the shadow right now. And the biggest misconception that I've come across is that it is all dark and evil and foreboding and quote unquote bad. And if we go back to Jung's definition that you mentioned at the beginning, it is just everything that I do not wish to be. So that's very different from evil. Yes, I quite agree. So then how does this tie in? I mean, how does the persona relate to the shadow? Uh, well, actually, it's interesting you were saying that because that was one of the main um, presentations I did at Houston um, I, because persona is quite neglected. I, th- I think on the whole, my experience anyway in the Jungian community is that um, a lot of Jungians are rather dismissive of persona. They see it as superficial and unnecessary almost. Uh, whereas actually it's a very necessary part of our psychological equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the personal shadow, when I was first in the Jungian world, um, the classical Jungian analysis would go along the lines of you first work through the personal shadow, and then you got to anima, animus, and so on, you know, going deeper and deeper into unconsciousness. Um and the personal shadow is by no means bad or evil. It's all the things that I either don't want to know or actually don't know about myself. And then what do we do with that? Well, that's <laughs> mm-hmm. a good question. Because uh, it can be quite distasteful, actually, you know, when one first has to um, look at and recognize parts of oneself that one was actually living through projection onto other people, Mm -hmm. Uh, all kinds of things. I personally, I have to say, I I, I know I'm going to be criticized for this, but I, I don't know if I want to use the word enjoy. I welcome shadow work because I want to know, right? Other people see things in us that we can't see not because we have a character defect, but because it's not possible for us to see. Right. So if 
other people are seeing things in me, I want to know about it. I Mm -hmm. want to become aware of that. Instead of me walking around, not realizing that I am uh, exhibiting these behaviors, or that I have these ideas or beliefs, I want to know about it. Tell me, let me work on this. Let me take a look at it. Isn't that better than walking around not knowing those things about us? Laura, you, I, I almost feel I'm listening to myself hearing you talk like oh. that. Um, it's so wonderful because actually I'm afraid there are, I would say, a great, great many people who don't want to know. Really? Uh, would much rather live through projections, through seeing all the um, things they don't like about themselves, seeing them out there. Uh, Trump is one example of that. I think that um, uh, he's a useful container for all kinds of things that people don't want to examine in themselves. Yes. Themselves. Yes. And so hate figures, I think, serve, uh, well, useful in quotes because actually um, – and one does wonder why there is, through the ages, why there's this propensity in humans not to want to know about mm-hmm. selves in depth. But it does seem to be a fact of life, doesn't it? Yes. And when I was first in analysis and really, really struggling, I would say to my analysts, why do I have to do this work on myself? Nobody <laughs> else does. Yes. Nobody yes. in my family does. Nobody around me does. Why do I have to do this? Well, I think that's probably what's meant by the chosen few. That is a mystery, Laura. I've been asking that question for decades. I don't know, and I don't think any of us know, why some of us are chosen. It's the Orestes' fate, isn't it? Mm. Why is it Orestes in that whole, you know, that family goes back generations, you know, to Niobe. and why is it Orestes who finally stops that, you know, generation after generation after generation of pathology that comes down through that family, murdering each other and doing all kinds of horrible things uh, to each other? Um, you know, that's, it's a, that is one of the great mysteries of life. I don't know, I have no answers to that one. I believe we have to. That's why we're here. Some of us carry that, yes. And I think Jung acknowledges that, doesn't he, when he says that the person, the individual who does this work on himself is doing a great work, not just for him or herself, but for the world. I'd ask her, why do I have to do this? And she said, well, because your life will work better. Yeah, and it does. You know, it's what Jung again was saying, you know, the worst thing is blind suffering. Mm. And how much of that do we see every day? Mm. You know, people have no idea that they are actually bringing a lot of their misery onto themselves. Not all. I mean, uh, I don't know what it must feel like to be born with certain, you know, disabilities and so on. That must be so terrible to have to mm-hmm. live. But, um, but the a lot of the what people call fate or why the fates against me kind of thing is is actually self-inflicted. 
huge amount. I, one can't say everything because then one begins to sound rather narcissistic, but um, a great many things. And we know ourselves that we keep finding ourselves, you know, uh, banging, up, banging up against the same complex. Right. Um, over and over again. You, you know, one can know about something and still actually fall into it. Um, uh, but but at least you have some insight into it. You say, oh, there I go again, you know, repeating that complex. Uh, yes. happens to be. In your book, Carl Gustav Jung, um, you do discuss Jung's own shadow. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would say a little bit about that, because as I'm sure you know, uh, some of us, some of the Jungian community does get accused of... Um, sort of deifying Jung, mm. uh, putting him on a pedestal. But Jung had a shadow too. Very much so. Um, and and a very dark shadow, as you know, to do with what happened in the 30s, in, in the last century. Um, I'm, interestingly enough, you're asking me that now because I'm just right this minute shadowing a book by uh, an American academic. He asked me if I would if I would do that, mm -hmm. um, the process of writing his book on anti-Semitism. And my goodness, the quotes that he has from Jung, you know, um, it's really horrifying, some of them. I, I knew most of that already. What Actually, what happened was um, a long time ago, um, for various reasons, I got interested in trying to track down a file on um, Okay, a, a, a man in New York called uh, Morris Leon tried to bring Jung to trial at Nuremberg in 1946 as a Nazi collaborator and anti-Semite. And so he sent a file, uh, an account, to the Foreign Office in the UK who were attending the Nuremberg trials on behalf of the UK. And so I, a, a friend of mine was working in the cabinet office at that point, which was part of government, and he he got the foreign office to send me this file. And um, in it, the um, Morris Leon, who is a New Yorker, was accusing Jung of founding a cult, a lion-headed cult, and of being a, an anti-Semite and a Nazi collaborator. Um, and so the Foreign Office looked at it and they basically said it was junk. And they said the best thing you can do with that is throw it in the waste paper basket. Uh, but nevertheless, there are there is evidence that Jung... Um, I, I don't for a moment think that Jung was a Nazi. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I do think there are many dubious uh, things that he said about... Uh, Jewish, you know, the Jew, Jewish psychology and so on. Um, uh, and also some of the work that he did at the Goering Institute in Berlin in the th 1930s, again, was extremely unwise because he was working along, alongside uh, Goering, who was a cousin of the Goering, you know, uh, Hitler's right-hand man. Um, so, yes, it's a very dark shadow. I don't think that um, 
uh, analytical psychology will ever actually emerge from that shadow. It's it's just too ingrained now as, um, you know, Jung as uh, having certain Nazi sympathies and being an anti- and being anti-Semitic. And it's, it's very difficult for anyone who's um, part of the Jungian community to have to live with that shadow. Mm-hmm. Any Jungians um, do keep um, looking into it and writing about it and so on. Uh, Jeffrey Cox's book is, is a very good, very, I, I think the, probably the most balanced account of all this, if you know that. What, Psych- what is the name? Psychotherapy in the Third Reich. And it's written by Jeffrey Cox, C-O-C-K-S. It, it's very, really, um, you get a lot from reading that. And you, he he he's, takes a balanced view, but he does he does think that Jung was perhaps unwise in some of the things he said and did in the 1930s. Yes, and on this podcast, in episode 47... I did an interview with Dr. Murray Stein and Dr. Oh, yes. Henry Abramovich, yes, oh, yeah. on their mm-hmm. play mm-hmm, about the meeting between Jung and Rabbi Leo Beck. I've heard of Rabbi Beck, so I don't know the play that you're mentioning, but yes. Yes, they co-wrote a play, and the screenplay was made into a book published by Chiron, and we mm-hmm. talked about it in episode 47. Um, the play was also released on DVD, and in it they address Jung's anti-Semitic remarks, and then mm-hmm. and then they discuss it. So, um, thank you for sharing that with us. And I was wondering if you also maybe wanted to mention the open letter um, that was yes. written by Andrew Samuels. Mm-hmm. Yes, which I've mentioned uh, in at Houston, which is one of the re- reasons I think I sent you the Savage Mind. Yes, yes. Um, Andrew uh, and many um, respected uh, Jungian analysts have this open letter, which um, oh, I think I've, I said something about it in in the Savage Mind. It, it's accusing Jung of. Um, I, I mean, I could go on and on about this. Right, one. I know. It's Jung and the Jungian and the Jungian community of uh, being prejudiced against people of African and South Asian descent. And of course, I have strong feelings about this because I'm British Indian myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read the letter. I've got it. If, uh, you can find it online very easily. Yes, I will put a link to that in okay. the show notes for this episode. Um, I'm just trying to, what did I say about it? Yes, I actually, um, I, I, what I did in that paper, as you saw in that presentation, mm-hmm. was to home in on this ghastly phrase, participation mystique. Yes. And I really took that apart. I gave the history of it and what a derogatory term this is, and mm-hmm. it's still being used by many members of the union community. Um, and I think that's most unfortunate because it perpetuates this idea that Jung and Jungians are pre- prejudiced. So this really never got resolved. Um, the mm-hmm. open letter was written. It was signed by a number of analysts and mm-hmm. and scholars um, who support what 
Dr. Samuels was saying, and it was kind of an apology for not addressing um, the accusations that were written in a paper called Jung, a Racist, back in 1988, that was published in the British Journal of Psychotherapy. British Journal of Psychotherapy, thank you. So I, this is a very touchy subject. The IOP is doing excellent work in all kinds of ways, which is why I'm supportive of it and have worked. I've actually done something like 20, well, now it's more than 25 years of work uh, for the IAP in different capacities. Uh, and it, when Andrew's letter was published uh, online, the IAP set up a working party in 2016 to look into this matter. So it is being looked at and investigated, and I think that's very worthwhile work that the IAP is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Andrew is a friend of, and, a, and a very old colleague of mine, and we, you know, we've done a lot of uh, creative work together uh, from over many years. Um, so, you know, it's. it's uh, I, I think it, it's really what we were saying earlier about shadow. You know, the more that one uh, opens it up to the light of day. The more something can be aired. Yes. Yes. It's not easy to do, and of course, it's very difficult for a whole community. More than three thousand. The IAP has more than three thousand Jungian analysts, uh, you know, as members uh, worldwide, and it's, it's a very difficult thing for the whole community to try and look at something like this. But the IAP has, as I say, set up this international working party, which is looking into it. Mm-hmm. And it's only natural that not everybody would agree. Oh, indeed, yes. A lot of people don't agree with what was said in the open letter, and, and really, and you know, made their points, and, and also were saying that um, they were very supportive of, after all, Jung did. Right. Uh, do uh, you know he he did some wonderful things uh, uh, when you read Deirdre Bear's account of how what he did on that a- African expedition of his it's quite extraordinary really that he that he had that kind of physical and psychological courage to do what he did there and he was obviously very interested in um in uh, people all around the world, as you know, their religions and their mythologies, but also in how they lived on a day-to-day level. The one place where he came to grief was, of course, my home, my motherland, which is India. Um, I think once he bumped up against the reality of India, uh, it was too much for him, and India often does have that impact on Mm. people. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here, and I was wondering if there's anything that we haven't covered that you were hoping to discuss? Thank you very much. I'll just have a quick look. I, I jotted down some notes before we talk, but I think we've pretty much... You're, you're an excellent interviewer, I must say. That's Thank you. That's why I agreed to this, because I watched your, you being interviewed, and I was most impressed by that. Uh, that that's so kind of you to say, and I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling me kind, because kindness is the quality that I most value in anyone. You know, 
I feel exactly the same way. That has really come to mean so much to me. And so when I do see it in others, I like to acknowledge it. Mm. It means a lot. Thank you, Laura. Yes. um, It's been a great pleasure. And uh, sorry, we have to finish now because it's lovely talking with you. I feel I'm talking to someone who's very much on the same wavelength. After we finished recording, we continued chatting, and I mentioned the late Jungian analyst, Professor John Dorley, who was my guest in episode four. Mrs. Casement wanted to add a few words about him. This is be my tribute, my personal tribute to John, because I did know him fairly well over the years. I invited him to be a speaker at the Young Lacan Conference in Cambridge in 2014, and then I invited him to contribute to the book, The Blazing Sublime. And so when it came to, he agreed, and when it came to the point where I needed the contributors to send me their material, I emailed John and didn't hear anything. And I thought, that's fair on my chance. So I emailed again. So nothing happened. And I got in touch with his, um, um, oh, I forgot what they're called now, but the Immaculate, I think the, oh yes, you know, the people in Toronto, where was John from? Was it Toronto? Ottawa? Ottawa, yes. And I've had a very helpful, I've, I've, all that's going to be in in the book, The Blaze of Sublime. A very helpful, you know, head of that community was a Catholic father, Catholic priest. Um, and also the, with the woman who wrote a lovely bit on John. And so I've included the obituary in, in at the end of the chapter. And also thank you to the uh, Immaculate. I can't, I should know because I'm a Yeah, Catholic. that's okay. I'll bring it up right now. It's uh, called the Immaculate. Um, oh, it, it, I, I'm, you know, being a Catholic, I often know what the is. I, I am too. So, um, oh, oh, there you are, Laura. That's another link between us. Yes. Oblates of Mary Immaculate. That's it. Thank you so much. Yes. There was a father. I'm afraid I can't remember his name, but I've mentioned him in the book, of course. So they, I said to them, um, you know, I, I have a pretty shrewd feeling that John actually has his trapped on his computer, so ah, could have a look. Yes. And sure enough, there it was. And they were so pleased, and they sent it to me. And so we've got John in the book, uh, as well as the obituary that Rosemary, and I can't remember her name, she's a Jungian of some kind as well at Ottawa. Um, uh, so all that's in the book. And Wonderful. Uh, yeah, and he wasn't very well, I have to say, when he came to the um, Cambridge conference. I noticed he, you know, he was walking with a stick, and he was clearly having difficulties. Yeah. So I was, I've spent some time with John there because I've always thought so highly of him, and I was very fond of him as a person. Um, so that that's a lovely end, I think, to our little afternoon together. Well, thank you so much. He was very special. Yes. uh, Everybody that I know who who knew him says the same thing. And a lovely, lovely sense of humor, too. Mm, That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. 
There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can help support this podcast at no extra cost to you simply by shopping at Amazon.com through any of the book links on the website or by registering through our links for any of the online video courses offered by the Jung Society of Washington, D.C. They include Dream Interpretation with James Hollis and Keeping Your Own Red Book with Susan Tybergian. You can start these courses anytime, go at your own pace, and you'll have lifetime access to the material. The links are included in the show notes for this episode. With special thanks to Liz Jefferson and a shout out to Caitlin Stevens and the author of the new novel, The Complex, Mr. Michael Walters, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung.